Welcome to The Clappers. This is Andrew Young. And this is Carl Quinn. On this episode of The Clappers, we talk about hacks. We talk about the white lotus. We talk about my rock and roll friend. And we talk about the Netflix movie Beckett. Carl. Andrew. What do you think about hacks? I wasn't sure if that was a very good title. I think it's an excellent title. Okay. I think it's uh, so for for anybody who's just arrived needs an update. The yes. story so far, Hacks is basically a sitcom about a young writer in Hollywood who gets bumped from uh, the show she's been working on over uh, a tweet that's deemed to be offensive, and the only gig she can get is to work as a sort of a, a, a joke writer, polisher, with a an ageing comedian in Las Vegas who's been playing, she's coming up to her 2,500th show. So basically the notion of hacks is like there's the old comedian, she's an old hack, and there's the young unemployable writer, also a hack. Who's also so a hack. I think it's a genius title. Okay, just uh, for, for me it's a, a phrase that people usually use for finding new ways to clean sinks or well uh, okay so like, like the notion system. of the life hack or whatever yeah, yeah i would say you could also apply it in that way you could say yeah. here's a young writer who's come in to perform joke hacks right yeah and here's okay, yeah, the old woman yeah. who is performing a life hack on the young woman who thinks <laughs> she's got the answer to everything but actually doesn't even have the questions to most things well no there so, are plenty of jokes at the young woman's expense Indeed, and it's I, I enjoy it. I think it's very funny. I, I I like the fact that three, four, five episodes in, she's only written one joke. She's been very busy, very <laughs> very busy it, about the house. Very good one. <laughs> <laughs> she's only written the one joke, which is astonishing. There's a cast <laughs> of supporting characters who are all fun and amusing. The, the comedian Deborah Vance is her yeah. name is a woman who lives in opulent splendor. She's extremely successful. She might remind you of other uh, entertainers who've moved to Las Vegas for the the gigs and the heat and the wealth and the opulence. And the paycheck. And the paycheck. She lives in one of those bizarre... French-style chateau, mock French it's, it's like, chateau. It's like a Versace mansion in yeah. the middle of the desert. Yeah, and it's in the middle of the desert, but surrounded by a, an oasis of greenery. And they, you learn very quickly that they have a, a certain kind of police ranger force who come and check up on your water usage, which I, I was actually pleased to find out about. Uh, if, you've <laughs> ever been to Palm, if you've ever been to Palm <laughs> Springs and you look at the extraordinary waste of water that goes on in the, you know, scores of golf courses and lawns they have there it's nice to know that somebody's looking after the aquifers so that that's that's my favorite there are many people called wally i suspect in that (laughs) part of the world um that's not the only reason to watch this show there is a so it's not just about the water (laughs) and the police (laughs) and the relationships that ensue from the guardianship (laughs) of the aquifers underneath the desert of las vegas what did you think did you find it amusing um, I I thought it was uh, look look there are, there are moments where it feels like it's a little bit try hard. Um, that, that's that's my dog trying hard to be part of the discussion. Yeah, um, dogs are like that. It, man. it feels like it's a little bit try hard. There are a 
couple of sort of plot points that I feel were sort of a little overly contrived, but I really enjoyed it. And and mm. I've watched the whole thing. I've watched yep. all 10 episodes and I, I think it gets to a really nice place by the end of it. And it, um, you know, it beautifully sets up for, you know, another season. And okay. Not in a way that feels overly gratuitous. It's, uh, you know, it's got a... It, that dynamic of of the the young person thinking she knows everything, kind of getting a little bit of a comeuppance, but also the older person who thinks they've got nothing truths. to learn, you know, new also truths. <laughs> getting a getting a fresh, um, a fresh way of looking at the world and getting a fresh perspective, not just on the world but on herself as well. I think it's it's really nice. I mean, I I think it's um, it, it's it's good, and it, it there's there's a really good scene. Uh, later in the series, which I, I'm guessing you haven't seen yet, where I may not have um, no. De- Deborah goes to a um, like a regular nightclub, not like a regular comedy club, to okay. do to do a set, and um, and it's uh, it, it it captures something about well something really quite wonderful about um, what's not wonderful in the in the dynamics of the comedy industry and and you know club MCs and owners and their attitude to female comics and so on. Uh, and you get a sense of how much things have changed and how little they've changed. Of course. It's just really, it's very, it's a great, look, I, I thought that episode was just a knockout. I really loved it and I loved the payoff in it. So I would, I would uh, urge you to, to, to stay. Well, I've got no trouble staying with this. I enjoy it. I like when people are nasty to each other, as you know, I like mean <laughs> characters. I like spoiled young people getting their comeuppance. I'm worried that this is going to be a little tender and a little sentimental and it will end with hugs all round, which is my concern. Don't tell me anything. Um, I don't tell our audience anything. As long as it doesn't end up with learning and hugs all round, then I'm more than happy to stay with this because there's enough nastiness. There's enough... Um, Mother being mean to forty-five-year-old teenage daughter, yeah. uh, for, for, and and her millennial assistant slash joke writer for me to get uh, pleasure out of this show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, yeah, I'd, I'd very much recommend it. Um, Hannah Einbinder plays Ava, the the young yes. um, writer, uh, down on her heels, and Jean Smart as Deborah Vance is marvelous. She is. She now, takes the whole thing away. You can't get me a meeting to write on anything. I'm just, I'm just done because of one mistake. Maybe in the future, you don't need to say exactly how you're feeling about everything at all times. Oh, I guess I should just jump out the window. Now, Carl, there's a book that I've just read, and I read it practically all in one go. It's, go on. I'm going to tell you what it is. It's called My Rock and Roll Friend by Tracy Thorne. Have you heard of Tracy Thorne? Sure, yeah. Tracy Thorne, everything but the girl, Tracy Thorne. That is the Tracy Thorne in question. Tracy Thorne is also an author, and I read a book of hers earlier this year in April called Bedsit Disco Queen, which is essentially an autobiography, and it stops in the early 2000s. It's a very interesting book if you're interested in the band, but also if you're interested in what it's like for a woman to try and forge a career for herself in the music industry. Now, my rock and roll friend, is ostensibly well i'll tell you what it's not it's it's not a biography of a band or of a member of a band it's about lindy morrison who a few people may have heard of um not through any great 
hard work on the biographies of the go-betweens, but believe it or not, she was in the go-betweens. She was the drummer for the go-betweens. However, she's being erased out of history as we speak, but she was a member of that band. And while people might like to think of them as a duo that accidentally got a drummer and accidentally got a bass player and some other musicians along the line, but were ostensibly a, a duo of pals of best mates, they were a band and they were a band for quite a while. And uh, the contributions of Lindy Morrison are hotly argued for by Tracy Thorne in this book. However, it is a book about their friendship, not so much a biography of her or of the band. I bristle a little bit at this idea that um, Lindy Morrison has been written out of the story of the go-betweens. I, I, I don't hold that to be true. I mean, mm-hmm. um, any, any more than Amanda Brown. Um, I mean, you know, Lindy's got more of a claim. I mean, she was mm. there virtually from the beginning, not not quite the beginning, but almost from the beginning. Um, and... You know, she was there right to the end. She was mm. an integral part of the go-betweens, and you, you, you'd say her drumming style is, is quite distinctive and, you know, I, I think is part of the, you know, the strange, weird, beautiful alchemy that is the go-betweens. Jonathan Lethem, have you heard of Jonathan Lethem, the author? Yeah, yeah. He was asked by Rolling Stone to write a review of, is it, what's, what was the album that, the, that Grant McLennan and Robert Foster put out? Which one? Friends of Rachel Worth. Friends, Friends of Rachel Worth was the first of the, I think it's three albums they did in their sort of um, their sort of post breakup phase. Right. So he he refused. He was a he was one of the the, the twelve people who were fans of the Go Betweens in the US when they played there. And he has he, he, in this book, uh, my rock and roll friend. There's a very funny anecdote from him of what happened when he went and saw them, which I won't I won't elaborate on. But he said. He could not possibly bring himself to listen to the go-betweens without Lindy, Robert, Lindy Morrison. And he says, uh, I have a grudging respect for Led Zeppelin refusing to continue after John Bonham died. And I, I, I kind of uh, am contemptuous of the who for continuing after Keith Moon died because as far as he's concerned, the drummer is the band. But he does, he does. You concur with that, oh, no doubt. <laughs> there's, Jonathan Lethem is going to be receiving a few letters from me in the near future, and maybe I'll send him some photographs and links to things that I'm up to. Uh, he, he's a brilliant man, obviously, but he, he does end Perspic- up... Listening. Perspicacious, I think, is the word you're looking for. <laughs> he does end up listening to the album, and he says, look, right. I might even like this album. You know, he's a big go-betweens fan, but yeah. he... he he can't bring himself to acknowledge it as part of the go-betweens canon because as far as he's concerned, that's that's what it is. Now, this I, I say, can I just say yes. it's his loss because I think Friends of Rachel Worth is one of their one of their best albums. Actually, well, he buys it. He listens to it. He buys it. Yeah, he buys it. Yeah, I know. <laughs> well, yeah, that, that's what makes him a very strange man, doesn't it? Uh, anyway, this book is about a friendship between two adult women and yeah. two adult women who live in the world of music and uh, semi-popularity, you know, um, the, everything but the girl didn't really become hugely popular until what would have been considered the end of their, the twilight of their career, their first few albums, like the go-betweens, very popular in a sort of small independent world. But uh, it took a while for, for some of their material to really take off on the, the uh, international stage. And, so these are two women who go about their work more or less unrecognised, but with a great amount of support and care for each other. And I, I'm not going to 
I'm not spoiling anything, I don't think, but it, well, actually, I would be spoiling it. I'm not going to say this, but there's a couple of really interesting turning points in this book as far as their friendship is concerned. But the thing that makes it interesting to me, and I only really got it to read because I'm a, uh, I'm a, let's say I'm a fan of Tracy Thorne as opposed to being a fan of Lindy Morrison. I burn with hot indignation at the way Lindy Morrison was treated by that band and their producers. But I wouldn't say I'm a fan. However, the stuff in this book about Lindy Morrison's life before the go-betweens is absolutely riveting and fascinating. And you are very pleased to be in the capable hands of a friend who's granted all access to all papers and diaries and letters and um, personal contact. They're still friends. Uh, you're very pleased to be not so much in sympathetic hands, but in hands that are writing about somebody that they know really well. Normally I'm not a big fan of the authorised biography of the the, um, the person given access to the great man's works and expected to then um, work up a hagiography. This isn't like that at all. This is really about uh, one person's view on another person. There's not, not a lot of mutuality in this. It's a Tracy Thorne talking about what Lindy Morrison means to her as opposed to the other way around. But it's a, it's a great book uh, and I think I think uh, Tracy Thorne mentions this at the start, or maybe Lindy Morris mentions at the start, that there is an appetite for books about grown women and their friendships and their relationships. And I'm pleased because it's it's well worth reading. And like I say, I just read it from, I was going to say from cover to cover, but I have a confession to make. Uh, I read this book not <laughs> as a book, but on an e-reader, Carl. Right, yeah. The that first can be time, a disjointed experience. The yeah. first time in my life I've picked one of these up. And really? Yeah, yeah. I've never used one. I've never seen oh, use for one, but I used it to read this book, and you know, I might, I may well read another on this e-reader. But people who are interested in the go between and Lindy Morrison will get something out of this. There is quite a bit of material on on them and and their relationships. Not, I mean, Robert Vickers isn't mentioned by name at all. John Wilstead gets a sentence so it's it's you're not going to get a lot about right. go-betweens but you're going to get a bit about lindy morrison and robert foster and a bit about grant that i i learned something about grant mcclennan i'm not i'm not the expert you may not learn something about grant mcclennan if you read this book but i certainly did <laughs> i'm gonna have to read it to, to work it out i'll tell I? you what when we stop recording carl i'll tell you what it is i okay. learned about grant mcclennan <laughs> that i don't think is widely known but okay. worth, but and and look, the stuff on the breakup of the band is very good. It's right. very good. It's better than anything that I'd seen in that film that was was a Chris Stenders film that came out just recently. The go between right here. Yeah, uh, it was. It's very good. And again, even if you don't know who the go betweens are, and there's only about three or four people who do. Um, You'll get, a, you'll get a lot. And look, two every, of them are in this conversation. Yeah, exactly. I mean, what are the odds? It's very funny. <laughs> Lindy Morrison says, look, I don't want this book to be about the three German students. Who are the, I don't want this book to be for the three German students who are fans of the go-betweens. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well. That's, so, yeah, I'm recommending this book. And you can read good. it You can read it on an e-reader if you want. <laughs> as an aside, as an aside, yes. the, I've, I've had a, uh, an e-reader, a Kindle, for, for many years. Mm. Um, and uh, I've sort of had a, a, a love-hate relationship with it. I, I, I fell in love with it at the, at the beginning because it was suddenly like, oh, my God, I've got all of these books. I don't have to carry mm. them around in my mm. bag. And um, That's how they get you, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of, a lot of uh, upside in it, absolutely. And you can, like, 
I need to read something, you can download it. You've got it instantly, right? Yeah, exactly. Fantastic. And in these times when everything's shut, you know, it's it's a really useful tool. Yeah, no question. But the downside and and the huge downside, I mean, you said I read this cover to cover. Here's the biggest downside is Mm. you never see the cover of the book, right? Mm. I can't tell you how many times I've been reading a book that somebody's sort of flicked to me or I've, I've, you know, found on a whim or whatever and I'm enjoying it. I can't remember who wrote it or what it's called. It's like, <laughs> it's terrible. Because, it's the Spotify syndrome, not, isn't it? <laughs> it is, because I'm not looking at the cover. And it's like, yes. going, oh, who wrote this book? It's um, Amazon. And what's it called? <laughs> it's called Kindle. It's like, <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, it is, it is definitely a downside. To mm. it. Yeah. Yeah. So, just as an aside. White Lotus. What do you think of when I say White Lotus? White Lotus. An unfolding. I think you've been doing elocution lessons, working on your pronunciation of white. It's the White Lotus, actually. It's the. There's a definite article. There is a definite article there. That's right. I can see why. I can see why. Well, it's the name of a hotel. It's the name of a hotel or resort, I Uh guess, uh, on Hawaii. Uh, and, uh, well, I should say in Hawaii. I don't know which island it's on. Um, and uh, it, it's a six-part HBO series that follows, uh, what is it, a week, I think, in, um, yeah, I guess in it is, the yeah. life of this, this resort. Um, one of the main characters is the resort manager, Armand, played by the Australian actor Murray Bartlett. And then there's a bunch of guests there and each of them has their own kind of storylines and they all sort of cross over and intermingle and whatever. They're all white. They're all spoiled. They're all annoying. (laughs) And I have to say... They're not all white. They're not all white. The guests. Okay, you make an excellent point there, Carl. Mm. You make an Mm. excellent point. When one says they're all white, well, they're not all white, really, are they? No, exactly. He thinks I'm an asshole. Were you an asshole? I guess I'm just wondering what uh, you might be able to do for us to make us feel better. No, I was actually trying to not be an asshole. That you failed? (laughs) I didn't think it was very funny. I I found it enjoyable. I found it disgusting. I, I, I found myself having a certain investment in the outcome of the story, wanting certain things to happen to certain people. Yep. But it wasn't very funny. I know it's supposed to be, isn't it? It's it would be would be called a comedy, right? Uh, look, I think it would be wrong to call it a comedy. I think okay. it's um, what well, I put it more in the sort of uh, satirical drama kind of space, right? I mean, mm-hmm. it's sort of it's 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 definitely not sort of sitcom kind of comedy. It's not it's not playing every scene for the gag. It, mm-hmm. I mean, there are no gags. I mean, no. there's not there's not a single gag in it. There are a couple of sight gags. Um, or a couple of sites will make it gag, perhaps. <laughs> I think um, that's more along the lines, really, <laughs> what you're talking about there. But, um, <laughs> but, but I think it's like it's more, um, I think, a sort of a skewering of certain um, social pretensions of, of, a, of a particular um, class or echelon of, of American society. Well, we'll call it Western society, I guess, because you could find much the same here. Mm. Um, it absolutely has kind of race relations in its sites. It has... Uh, notions of white privilege in its sites, class. But, it, but but I I'm I'm a little bit unsure where it ultimately sits. You know, is this a is this a kind of um, you know like a a right on kind of skewering skewering of privilege, or is it actually not that? Is it a slightly reactionary kind of? 
pushback on the idea of skewering privilege. I, I'm a little bit undecided on it uh, at, at this point. But that said, the pure experience of, of watching it, I almost didn't make it through the first episode because mm -hmm. I found it so grating. I found everybody yeah. in it so absolutely annoying. Mm -hmm. um, it's true. And it's true. They are by all the end. Yes. By the end, I was really quite, uh, I guess, delighted uh, mm -hmm. that I. Well, glad that I'd stayed with it. You know, yeah. I kind of felt like, yeah, there was payoff there. I think the last five minutes are maybe a little bit too pat, but yeah. um, but there's. There's some really good stuff in it. And um, I think in particular, like the most queasy, horrible thing is the relationship between um, Jennifer Coolidge playing this very wealthy woman, Tanya McCoy, who is there to bury, well, to scatter her mother's ashes and is basically a totally dysfunctional alcoholic with a lot of money at her disposal. And the woman who runs a sort of uh, spa, the the, the wellness center. therapist, the wellness center. That's right. Bel um, uh, Bel Belinda, her name is played by Natasha Rothwell, and and there's this kind of, you know, Tanya, the Jennifer Coolidge character, keeps saying, "Oh, you're so wonderful. You should run your own business. I could set you up." And it's this kind of a failed. Like, vague non-offer is made. So. In, indeed. And it's this kind of um, white saviour kind of dynamic mm. that is ultimately and predictably, I have to say, mm. completely unfulfilled and empty and worthless. And mm. I actually found that storyline really, really powerful. I found yeah. that so, like, you know, kind of, yep, seen this, kind of know this, you know. And, yeah, I, I found it really... Uh, yeah, really, really strong. And uh, except for what one person's situation, and even that, it's more symbolic. Almost everybody's problem, um, every guest's problem that they have, is barely what would constitute a problem for most people in this world. Yeah, and it's it's you can't you can't feel sorry for them, and they do a good job of feeling sorry for themselves. It's like <laughs> it's like Prince Charles, <laughs> um, but. but uh, the performances uh, just stop short of being caricatures, which I think is helpful, which helps keep you keep you going. I, I would say about it, you know, in terms of the the notion of them playing just this side of caricature, um, and th I, I think what really worked for me in this show is, that for the most part, as petty and first world ish as their problems were, mm. um, I kind of empathised with most of them at a certain point. <laughs> And this is this is why you and and that that's a clever trick to pull off because you're kind of repulsed by them at the same time as you're going oh yeah I, f I feel a little bit like that too. well Connie Britton's <laughs> Which... character the mum who is yeah. somebody who is very easy uh, as a a stock type of corporate. Um, selfish character, very easy to hate a character like that. Just like the Laura Dern character in Big Little Lies, I think a little bit, you know, except not as unlikable. Yeah, I was going to say there are moments where you do have some, you can be led to having some form of feeling for her by the mm. nastiness of her daughter towards her, her teenage daughter. I know everybody says that this is teenage daughters and this is how they are, and I'm sure they are. Nasty, nasty, nasty. And 
all I did throughout not that my show. Delightful no, not dog, yours. No, no, sorry. Say, no, just sorry, just no. in case by some miracle they listen to this. <laughs> <laughs> no, they're not listening. But no, I don't mean. Well, if they did, they'd say you're so boring, Dad. <laughs> But I, I did spend most of the series waiting for those two girls to get their comeuppance. Yeah. Some may say that they do. I don't feel they do. But, but mm. others watching it might say, yes, they, they learned sharp and painful truths. And oh, it's not enough for me, mate. Uh, I didn't mm. think they got it. Even Armand, you know, the, the resort manager. I liked him. He's an appalling human I liked being. him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he was the best. <laughs> What could be like? What could be a better character? <laughs> he's he's uh, he, he's a um, he's been sober for five years, but mm. he immediately off the wagon immediately. Like everything happens in the first five minutes. Spectacular, <laughs> yeah. pills, wreck. alcohol, powders, he, um, <laughs> sexual misdemeanors. Hey, don't, hey, whoa, whoa, whoa. you're giving too much oh. away. This is all the gold, man. You're giving away <laughs> me, the best parts me, of this show. Let me just say that this show will redefine the notion of Pacific Rim. It's just <laughs> real. How long did you spend working that one up, eh? 32 seconds. <laughs> it's, uh, I, I, I do think he is a spectacularly flawed character, mm. and it is, a, it is a great performance. Sometimes just watching them eat every night makes me want to gouge my eyes out. So, Carl... Yes, Andrew. Will no one rid me of this turbulent priest? <laughs> Help me. <laughs> what are you doing? Well, Thomas A. Beckett, who was slaughtered oh, in Canterbury Cathedral. To a Beckett. You've gone to A. Beckett. <laughs> That's what you want to talk about, right? The slaughtering of Thomas A. Beckett who was well, not the saintly churchman that he has been painted uh, subsequent to his murder at the right. orders of Henry II, who said, purportedly, will no one rid me of this turbulent priest? And a couple of guys said, yeah, we will. Yeah, we'll do that. And off they rode. Yeah. We'll, we'll take him off your hands, Governor. I think it was oh, three so nights. Yeah. I think it was yeah. three nights. Three nights. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, anyway, yeah. uh, we, we are talking not- about... We are talking about a Beckett, but it's not that Beckett. Okay. It is the oh. Netflix film Beckett, mm-hmm. and uh, it's uh, it's turbulent. I'd, yes. I would definitely say it's turbulent. <laughs> yes, um, it stars John David Washington as a fellow called Beckett, mm-hmm. and uh, the film starts with him and his girlfriend April, played by Alicia Vikander, on holiday in Greece, and they're sort of tooling around in the the north of the country and just sort of wandering somewhat aimlessly in a vehicle uh, from site to site, ruin to ruin, as you do in Greece. Um, They had been in Athens, but they'd been told to get out because there was going to be a big political demonstration and things would get rowdy and they went, oh, let's go up there and, you know, have a nice cruisy time. So we get the first five to ten minutes of, of the film with them in this mode and then... They're driving from one town to another at night. He falls asleep, crashes the car, she dies. Mm. So that's the setup. Um, the car crashes into this desert, well, farmhouse out in the middle of nowhere. And as he's lying upside down, you know, strapped into his seatbelt, you know, dazed, confused, going, where is, where is April? Where's she gone? Um, he sees this kid. Uh, uh, off in the room with with a woman, and you know, 
is this real? Is this not real? Who knows? Um, he frees himself. He ne- we cut to hospital. Um, we, well, we see April on the floor, presumably dead. He's then in hospital, finds out the police tell him, yes, she's died and yada, yada. Things get a little bit murky. He goes back to the site of this crash for reasons that are not entirely clear. I guess probably just to go, is this what really happened? Is this, you know, is this is this the site? Is this where, is there any trace of her? Because he hasn't seen her body at this stage. Okay. So it's, it's kind of unresolved. And while he's there, he gets shot at. He gets chased and shot at by police. So we're immediately into... Uh, corruption and conspiracy kind of territory. And that's pretty much where the film stays for its entire running time. It, mm-hmm. it is basically a chase movie where he Good. is trying to outrun corrupt police who seem to know at every turn where he's going to be and uh, and are determined to kill him. And, Transponder um, under the car. It's, yeah, it's, it's like, well, it had, at times, it, it reminded me of... Like early on, it reminded me of the parallax view, right? It yeah. has this sense of, um, you know, what's real, what's not real, uh, how much of this is actually conspiracy, how much of it is imagined, how much, of, you know, is he being set up for something? And the fact that there's sort of like political rallies playing into this and, mm-hmm. you know, suggestions of uh, assassinations and so on. Um, it's all very, it feels like it's heading in, in uh, that direction. It's not as smart as that. It's, no. it's what about Z? Did it remind you of the Costa Garvis film Z? Well, it did vaguely. It's conspiracy but, but, and political assassination yeah, it, and rallies. Yeah, and and also Greece. But um, Greece, of course. It, it did, but I kind of I kind of thought, well, am I just projecting that because it's Greece? You know? Yeah, like, yeah. I'm yeah. I'm not sure really if it if it does. But anyway, it's. I mean, it's probably got more in common with something like the fugitive i think than anything else you know mm-hmm. the idea of like an ordinary guy who gets caught up in something yeah. that he doesn't really understand but has to try to unravel and solve except an innocent man not... having to you know prove his innocence yeah for well a crime and, he didn't in this case mostly stay alive yes <laughs> <laughs> i mean it doesn't have that kind of prove his innocence thing right. so much it has the get get out of the clutches all of all the people who have agendas that would lead to him being dead you know so very um, much like the hitman's bodyguard's wife so um if you say so because i still haven't seen that oh, um what a treat you have in store oh, for I'm you so looking forward to it. um and look it, it's had very very mixed reviews this film but um compared to a lot of the stuff that turns up on the streamers at mm. the moment I actually really enjoyed it. I mean, I, yeah. I loved the soundtrack. I loved the, which is by Ryoki Sakamoto, uh-huh. um, yeah. uh, it, which kind of felt to me like a throwback to those sort of 70s conspiracy theories with these kind oh, of like yes. drawn strings and, yeah. you know, kind of really ethereal kind of sounds um, that, that are always just slightly disorienting. I, I found, I thought the cinematography and the use of landscape had that mm-hmm. effect as well. It kind of had this slightly... Um, not dreamy, but slightly disorienting kind of quality, and and I think it, you know, it's, uh, I, I thought it was pretty pretty effective. It gets a bit dumb in the last ten minutes, where it's sort of like, damn, you it's know, always sad to hear that when it's been uh, going well, so well. You know, I would say I would say the vast majority of movies, particularly um, sort of movies that have a, a suspense thriller kind of element to them, they tend to unravel a little bit towards the end when they. You know, because this kind of, there's this kind of um, upping the stakes kind of thing. You know, like it's like, well, that film did that, so we've got to do something more oh, yeah. dramatic. You know, yeah. and I kind of think they they just 
they sort of throw plausibility to the wind a little bit, and that's that's what this is guilty of towards the end. I mean, it kind of it plays out in a, in a realm where you could go, well, he's damn unlucky, but I suppose something like this could just about happen if you sort of suspend your you know disbelief just a little bit. But then in the last you know ten minutes, it becomes, well, I suppose it could happen if he was Superman. <laughs> it just becomes a little bit too much. So, but. Until then, and and despite that, I would say it's it's pretty good fun. It's it's a good, enjoyable um, piece of you know edge of the seat drama. Thanks for listening to the Clappers. If you like us, well, like us by going to our Facebook page and saying, "If you like you guys, great." You don't have to. You can unlike us. You can say something mean, and I won't mind. I can take it on the chin. I, however, will be distraught. Yeah, so so, so, yeah maybe don't. No, no. Carl's very thin-skinned, you know. Very thin-skinned. <laughs> Thick-headed, but thin-skinned. <laughs>